Nick, just get ready to do a whole lot of editing. Okay, so far so good. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by people who take a long time in airplane bathrooms. What's confusing about that? Um, maybe confused is the wrong word. It drives me batty that people go into the bathroom on an airplane on a 16-hour flight and are in there for 15 minutes while there's a line building out the door. This does not drive you crazy? It does drive me crazy. Okay, I wanted to make sure I'm not... Yes, uh, I, don't, I don't like it. No. Anyway, um, there should be a rule. There should be a timer. Yes. Are there things that make it acceptable? Like, what if that person comes out with a baby? Um, then do did you... they go in with a baby? <laughs> that would be weird if they didn't. I'm never there to see. I don't know. <laughs> I think that would change things a lot. Okay. So I'm Matt Fox from the uh, Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. I'm here as always with Chris Gill. Hello, Matt. And Jennifer Ryder. Hi. From the Departments of Chris Global Health. Jennifer Epidemiology. Uh, and as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website, www.pophealthex.org. That's our BU's hub for lifelong learning. And uh, we have now it's time to, to get ready for our you Winter know, Institute. It, it's not a coincidence that it's BU's hub for lifelong learning because Boston is considered to be the hub. It just occurred know, to me. Do you know why it's the hub? Because it used to be a center for bicycling? No. I believe it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said that the Boston State House is the hub of the universe. Is that right? I believe that is correct. I think it's still true. I probably, it's possible I made that up, but it's something like that, I believe. Anyway, we are getting ready for our Winter Institute, which starts on January 6th. It's all online this year, so you don't have to come to Boston in the sweltering heat of January. And this year features introductory biostatistics course, course in GIS, one on story maps, and then some mystery free webinar that Nick will not tell me what's going on. You'll just have to sign up for that one. So um, before we go into the show, can I tell you guys a story that happened just now or 10 minutes ago? So I was with Don and we were coming down the elevator here in the building, which is for the listener at home is not the building where my office is, your office, any of our offices are. It's a different building. And Don asked me, whether or not any of our students listen to the podcast. And I said, I, it's really unclear to me. I don't know exactly how many of our students, uh, how many or who exactly is listening. And somebody at that point in the elevator turned around and said, I listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. I knew you guys' voice sound familiar. That's so cool. And it was a med student here in the, the BU School of Medicine. So you that know, was who, pretty who awesome. Who I think listens to our podcast is, the, is the, one of the health writers for the New York Times. And I have no proof of this. <laughs> But I see topics that we have reviewed in the past two years show up on their list all the time. Wow. This week, for example, they were talking about the ants that get eaten by that that fungus and that like become these zombie ants. Yeah. We talked about it a year and a half ago. I think we did, yeah. We did. You know, it's it's like it is spooky how many how many hits okay, well then, co-hits. If we're allowed to go by we have no evidence, then Jay-Z listens. It's true. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Okay, so now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we are going to look at a study on the relationship between playing soccer, and I probably should say professional soccer, and neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative, 
neurodegenerative neurodegenerative disease. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the high cost of reformatting for journal submission, a topic that is probably um, of big concern to those of us who do journal submissions. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into some things that have made us laugh out loud or Jen will tell us about a new way to eat cane toads. I assume. Did you talk about that last time? Yeah. Wow. How do you not know? You didn't How many listen? ways to eat cane toads are there? Well, it depends on who you are. Clearly, someone hasn't been listening to the episodes recently. Sorry. It's okay. Are these sugar cane toads? Yes, correct. They're they sweet. Are. They're sweet. So you can stick them on a stick and lick them? No, that is no, not the they're case. They're poisonous. Yeah, I wouldn't oh. do that. I would not do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, Important segment one. <laughs> <laughs> This is medically important. Yes, it is. It's public health in action. Do okay. not put cane toads on a stick and lick them. Do not. All right. So segment one, let's talk about an article on the link between soccer and neurodegenerative. Neuro- neurodegenerative I cannot diseases. say it. It's a tough one. Yes. Neuro- it's basically when your neurons get whacked by yeah. being whacked too often. Yeah. Neurodegenerative disease. There you go. So this right. is published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled, uh-oh, neuro. Degenerative Disease, Mortality, and Former Professional Soccer Players by first author Daniel F. Mackey McKay of the Institute of Health and Wellbeing at the University of Glasgow at the Hampton Sports Clinic, Hampton Stadium. And I just put that in there because I didn't know whether the Hampton Stadium part was important from the point of view of a professional soccer player. Anyway. Could be. Let me give you the, some headlines for this one. Uh, so Technology Network says former soccer players could be more likely to die from Alzheimer's. Uh, Drugs.com says neuro- neurodegenerative disease deaths up in former soccer players. Uh, BBC News says ban on children's heading balls considered by SFA. And then they cite this article so it wasn't directly related. And then Medscape says pro soccer players at high risk for death from Alzheimer's and ALS. So, Jen, can you start us off by telling us the the story and then we'll get into whether or not these headlines were indeed accurate? So, we know that contact sports may be associated with neurodegenerative disease. So that includes Alzheimer's, ALS, and chronic traumatic uh, encephalopathy. It's not easy, is it? (laughs) Which... From here on out, I'm going to refer to as CTE. That's better. Which is okay. getting hit in the head too often. Exactly. Okay. But most of these studies have actually been done looking at the pathologic changes that occur as, as part of CTE. So there are far fewer studies on contact sports and risks of neurodegenerative diseases. Another thing that the authors pointed out is that, you know, participating in contact sports, you know, being athletic can have a lot of very positive health benefits. Mm -hmm. And so these authors were interested in putting the risks in context with overall mortality and death from other other, uh, diseases. Another thing they pointed out is that more than a quarter of a billion people play soccer globally. So this could have a Apparently large, it's a big deal. Large public health impact. Yep. So this study was conducted in Scotland. Uh, it's a retrospective cohort study. They took a cohort of exposed former uh, professional soccer players in Scotland and then matched them, I believe, three to one yep. from a general population registry based on sex, year of birth, and degree of social deprivation, which was based entirely on postal code level data. The former soccer players were identified from um, a database that was 
put together from the archives of the Scottish Soccer Museum, mm-hmm. and as well as some individual uh, soccer clubs. It contained information including date of birth, dates of when the player signed uh, the contract and then retired, the number of match appearances that player participated in, as well as their position. And then the authors used probabilistic matching to link the soccer player to that person's unique community health index number. So this is kind of like a social security number that's unique to every person. And then that could then be used to link up with the person's electronic health records. Mm-hmm. And they, they pulled in three controls per case? That's correct. Right, right. Yep. Although three exposed to unexposed, because it wasn't... they. They, were they not, call them controls, but they're but really they were, just the unexposed. Well, they, were, they were controls in the correct sense of the word. Non-soccer playing, non-soccer players, non-professional exactly. soccer playing dudes. They were not being sampled based on whether or not they had the outcome. So it wasn't a case control study. Okay. All right. So the electronic health records were used to identify cause of death from the death certificates based on ICD-9 or 10 codes. So they were interested in whether death with neurodegenerative disease uh, was the primary or a contributory cause of death. They were also looking at the most common causes of death in the Scottish male population. Uh, One thing to point out is that there's no ICD-9 or 10 code for CTE specifically. So they would have captured that if it was coded on the death certificate as an other cause of uh, neurodegenerative disease, but um, but they have missed may may have missed some of those diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Sure. They were also able to link up to the prescribing information system, which includes all prescriptions that were dispensed in the community starting in 2009. So they were also able to look at whether soccer players were more likely than the general population to be prescribed medications for dementia. Okay. 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 So in terms of their analysis, the primary analysis involved Cox proportional hazard models, and they used age as the underlying time scale so that all participants entered the cohort at age 40 and then were followed through the date of event or censoring. The end of study was at the end of 2016. They also did sensitivity analyses using fine and gray competing risk regression to look at the impact of deaths from ischemic heart disease and cancer on the results for death from uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Those were kind of like internal controls, right? Diseases we would not necessarily no. think would behave the same These way. Are, those were all the same people, but they were just treating the outcome a little different so that they could see how much those other cause of death in, influenced their results. Yeah, with right. competing risk, the idea is that you are, if you die from one thing, you are no longer at risk for death from the other. It's not a normal statistical model would treat you as censored, which means you're no longer in the data set, but we assume you would have the event sometime in the future. Whereas if you've died from another cause, we know you're not going to have the event of interest. Right, so it's like it, a James Bond movie. You can only die once. Uh, let's Thank go with you. that. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that's ever been used as a competing risk tagline. But I think it should be. Absolutely. Or a new James Bond movie title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> James Bond, <laughs> you proportional <only> hazards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they also did some subgroup analyses according to the player position. All right, into the results. So of the 9,670 former professional soccer players that they identified, they all had to be born after 1977. Which I was thinking is a big sample size for what we're talking about. Scottish right. soccer play, professional Scottish soccer players. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. 
They were able to match up records to 7,676 of those. So some of them just couldn't be matched based on their algorithm. They identified 23,028 uh, matched participants to serve as the unexposed group, and they had a median follow-up of 18 years from baseline at age 40. During that follow-up time, 1,180 soccer players, so 15% of them, and 3,807 of the match cohort died of one cause or another. The mean age of death was slightly older in the soccer players, so 67.9 years versus 64.7 years in the, in the match cohort. The hazard ratio for all cause mortality, they reported as 0.87. But they also point out that there was evidence of non-proportionality. So the uh, proportional hazards assumption was not met. So as they should, they reported separate hazard ratios according to different uh, age intervals. They found that overall mortality was lower among the soccer players up to age age 70, but then higher around 1.2 at age 80 and 1.5 at age 90. When they looked at specific causes of death other than neurodegenerative disease, they found lower mortality from lung cancer, hazard ratio of about 0.53, and uh, lower mortality from ischemic heart disease, about 0.8. When they looked at the hazard ratio for death from neurodegenerative disease as the primary diagnosis, the hazard ratio was 4.1. So quite a staggering increased rate of of neurodegenerative disease. So that was, and that confidence interval was 2.88 to 5.83. As I mentioned, they did this secondary analysis looking at sub-distribution hazard ratios from a fine and gray model, you know, fairly similar. That was 3.45. When they looked at uh, neurodegenerative disease as either primary or contributory to uh, death, the hazard ratio was 3.53. And when you looked at the specific diseases uh, that were involved, the highest rate ratio was for Alzheimer's, 5.07. That was also the only condition where the age of death was earlier in the soccer players than in the matched cohort. So if a participant a soccer player um, died from Alzheimer's on average at 77.5 years, where it was 81.3 years in the in the um, unexposed individuals. The lowest hazard ratio for any type of uh, neurodegenerative disease was for Parkinson's, which um, had a hazard ratio of 2.15. Uh, soccer players were also uh, much more likely to receive a prescription for a dementia-related illness. The odds ratio was 4.9, and they didn't seem to find any real differences by player position. Mm. Okay. So my take home on that is in terms of what they found, increased risk for pretty much all types of neurodegenerative disease mortality, being a soccer player compared to not being a soccer player. But yet lower mortality from... Well, okay. So that's where I'm going with this. Chris, I want your your take, but I specifically want to know why is the headlines for this not soccer players have lower mortality than the general public? As opposed to soccer players have higher neurodegenerative neuro, because you, you got it you have to die of something right so why is the message that that they have higher neuro neurodegenerative disease mortality and not the headline being that 
soccer players overall have lower mortality. Yeah, well, I guess because I suppose I would not be surprised to hear that elite athletes have lower mortality than the rest of us. Sure. That, that if, if that was not true, I would be really disappointed. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. On the other hand, maybe I would really sigh because I could say, you know, to heck, <laughs> to heck with the, the rowing machine is clearly irrelevant. You know? The rowing machine you're not actually <laughs> using? <on> the Cheetos. <laughs> right, good point. That's right. The, the rowing machine we purchased that's gathering some dust these days. So I guess I would imagine that's why. The, the the um, a couple of the things that that you 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 mentioned early on, Jen, really are I think so important to kind of delve into. The first one being this absence of an ICD-10-9 mm-hmm. code for chronic traumatic encephalopathy (CTE), which means that all those people who have CTE as their cause of neurodegenerative disease have to be coded as something else. Right. And the thing they're going to be coded as is probably Alzheimer's disease because that's the most common neurodegenerative disease. And it's also a disease that is almost impossible to diagnose in vivo, except on clinical grounds, which is often wrong because the only way to in know for sure... In vivo meaning the person's it, still alive. Right. Because the only way, while they're alive, you say someone looks like they have Alzheimer's disease because they have memory loss and, you know, short-term memory loss in particular, uh, and it's occurring as they get older. So you say it's probably Alzheimer's disease, and you'd probably be right. But in fact, Alzheimer's disease is a specific pathological process that involves tau proteins and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and beta amyloid sheets and is not due to vascular disease. It's not due to exercise, and it's also not due to being hit on the head, as far as we know. It's due to genetics more than almost anything. And, and yet, there is no diagnosis short of doing a brain biopsy, which can only do after they've died and people don't generally bother because why, why right. would you? Right. And that has only recently changed with the introduction of PET scans that can say in vivo while they're still alive, this is the kind of path- the pathology that we see that, that makes it look like it's Alzheimer's disease. And on top of that is that there's no reason on earth that you can't have Alzheimer's disease and chronic sure. traumatic sure. encephalopathy. They're not mutually exclusive. So if you've been hit on the head many, 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 many times, you can also die of Alzheimer's disease. So it, it makes the mis- misclassification part of this you know, really uh, tough. Really tough. And yet the signal that's coming through is that individuals on a soccer team who get hit on the head by heading balls that come at them very hard or by smacking skulls when someone else is trying to hit head the same ball at the same time and they go whack, you know, and, you know, that must happen all the time and over and over and over and over. Plus they get, you know, tackled and hit their head on the ground or other players' knees or shoulders. So it, like having your head bounced in professional soccer happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so all of this actually kind of kind of rings really true to me. And I, and I came away from this paper saying, yeah, I, I think I, I buy this. And the part of the analysis that I, I thought was most interesting was the fact that the, uh, the field players who are heading balls and getting smacked around a lot more than the goalkeepers mm-hmm. had a much higher risk of neurodegenerative disease. Because generally the goalkeepers are engaged in a totally different set of behaviors on the field that would not expose them systematically to head trauma. They might get kicked. Yep. They might get stomped, but they're not butting heads into balls. Not nearly as much. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, much rarely. So it was a, it was a clever little internal control that made me think that I, I think the biology hangs, and then you know if we're looking for causality or, or inferences about causality, uh, I don't know. I think they made a strong case for this. What did what do you think, Matt? So okay, so I as I always do, I my prior on this before I ever read it was that there's this is gonna there's gonna be an effect, and it I, what I said was. There's going to be an effect, and it's possibly going to be large. And I, I effect meaning, even once you account for the sources of bias that I think we're going to potentially find here, because it is an observational study, and because professional sports players are different from the general public, I still think there's going to be something going on here. But let me throw out a, a, a 
a theory anyway, because I do have I do have some concerns about this, and I, overall I think it's a it's a it's a good study. Overall, I think it does hang together. But this, you, so Jen, you mentioned the proportional hazards problem assumption problem that they had. So they split the data into before and after age seventy. Mm-hmm. I am. I find that problematic. And the reason I find that problematic is essentially what you're doing is you are saying we can look at people between the ages of 40 to 70, and then we can then look at people from the age of 70 on. The problem with that is that if you are in the second population, you have by definition survived to age 70. And if you have died of, you know, if you take the population of non-elite athletes, they are dying at a higher rate between ages 40 and 70, right? That was the general point is that, that the soccer players Compared are- Compared to the elite athletes. Are, are, they're dying at a, at a higher rate. And so right. essentially what you're doing is in some sense, you may be weeding out those people who are more likely to die at younger ages. Then you get to the 70 and beyond. Now you've got the elite soccer players who are now surviving to longer ages. They, they, they're they going to develop something. So is there a possibility that you're developing more neurodegenerative disease just because you're surviving longer to be able to have it and conditioning mm. on survival to mm-hmm. 70 removes some of that. Now, do I believe that explains the whole thing? Of course not. Not at all. Yeah, but the, the only thing that I, – I totally agree with your logic. But what, the one thing that counters that that Jen had mentioned was that the Alzheimer's disease diagnoses are systematically occurring at an earlier age in the professional soccer yep. players than in the not. And so that that would tend to dilute the effect of that potential bias, I would think. I would agree with you. And I, and I think that's the the fact that – I mean, so, so that is, of course, among those who are diagnosed, right? So right. it's only – that's a, it's a – limited comparison. But yeah, I I take your point. Yeah. And I also think that the fine and gray regression that they do accounts for that as well, because there you are saying you're comparing the hazards of people who are still alive or have not yet died of that event of interest, but could have died of a of a competing yeah, event. But only only within the model, though. So for the forty to seventy year olds, I yes, and within the seventy to a hundred year olds, true. But the fact that you've con- you've you've made the second analysis contingent on survival to age seventy, I think, is a source of selection bias. I think that's problematic. I don't think it's huge, but I do think it's potentially a problem. Yeah. So, but what would you when you don't have you know? When you don't meet the proportional hazards assumption, then what what should the authors do? Switch to a Weibull model or a <laughs> Gamma model or something. Else. I mean, there are other there are other models yeah. that you could you could have looked at here. But, but I found it I actually find found it a little frustrating that they I don't know I think reporting the overall hazard ratio when the proportional mm-hmm. hazards also assumption wasn't met yep. is a little misleading because you know that's the one that's going to get picked up and it doesn't really mean anything. And then there were a couple other times in the paper when they're talking about specific causes of death. So I think it's from from cancer and also respiratory deaths where they say the proportional hazards assumption wasn't met. They report the overall hazard ratio, but then don't tell us what, what they are yeah. within age groups. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we have no idea what that mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. I would also say, so um, the lung cancer deaths. So there was a reduced risk for lung cancer deaths among elite athletes, which is not at all surprising. Sure. But is it not indication of potential confounding that 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 elite athletes are not smoking? And right. And they did not the control for that. Is, and yeah. what did they control for? I mean, this is age, the shortest I mean, they, table one you've right, ever seen. They matched on age, sex, and this social deprivation and, and sex was assumed to be 100% male, because I think, I don't know if the, uh, did the Scottish sure. teams so, so that's have true. So I think women they players were, as well at the time? Um, 
They don't mention that in the paper, but it made me wonder because they don't even, you're right, they don't mention gender. They talk about how they looked at the most common causes of death among the male Scottish population. So I assume everyone was male, but they just made sure that their comparison cohort was also well, they all did, male. Yeah, right. they did say they matched on sex, right. so presumably exactly. that, but that, could that have been 100% matched to male all males. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Um, but, I mean, I, but, but doesn't that indicate there's, you know, there's got to be some confounding going on here that is that is that can't be adjusted for? Again, do I think it explains it all away? No, but uh, it makes me wonder. Yeah. I mean, I was sort of, you know, thinking about the these three statistics here, the cardiovascular disease deaths were 20% less likely in the soccer player. Yep. The lung cancer deaths were 47% less likely in the soccer players. And both of those could be inferred as, as like the consequences of, you know, being very active and probably having low body mass and exercising all the time and not smoking because you're an elite athlete and, you know, smoking is... I don't think un, unheard of in elite athletes, but it would one would Could assume it would depend on the time frame. generally yeah. lower because it makes it hard to be an elite athlete if you have smoker lung. Depends on the year, but Depend, yeah, uh, right. but back in the sixties, I think. Lower. Whereas you know, and then the other thing was that the 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 death rate amongst the the soccer players, the rates were lower across the board for those below the age of seventy, which I would attribute to them having been active and healthy and being elite athletes, and this is a consequence of their jobs. But then the the rates go up post seventy, which makes me wonder. I mean, now I'm totally spinning theories, but maybe that's because these, you know, during the course of their careers, they also accumulated all these orthopedic injuries, Mm -hmm. bad hips, bad knees, Mm -hmm. bad everything. And and like now all of those years of subtle trauma, or maybe not so subtle trauma, are catching up with them and they're paying a price on the back end for it relative to, you know, the couch potatoes like me. Yeah, I buy buy that. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I would say, uh, wonder is there is do you think there is a potential for surveillance bias here? I was wondering that too. I've never coded a death certificate, but could that be influenced by a person's occupation? Hmm. Or, or even not the death certificate itself, but the lead up to the death certificate, sure. and that you would be looking for neurodegenerative disease in a former athlete who you knew was having reasonable amount of head trauma. I would think that if you, that were the case, that you would see it increasing over time because we've been looking for it more probably now than we were say in the 19 you know 70s mm. 80s 90s yeah mm. and i think you know they did link up to this prescribing database i think to try and but at the same time i'm not sure that could be more evidence of of increased surveillance among among the athletes yep. Yep. my my personal bias would be that that would not likely happen. Yeah, I, I, and, fair. And, and the reason I'm, I'm, I'm saying that is based on my own experience as a medical intern, largely filling out death secrets in the middle of the night because it was the medical interns who did it. So the mm-hmm. lowest mm-hmm. members of the totem pole on, of you know, licensed physicians. And I never knew who any of these people were that I was filling out the certificates on. Okay. So, but, but, but would you not I have... didn't know anything about their social history. You didn't know about their medical history? I would know what was written in the chart, but it would be like, you know, you know, this is an individual who, who is presenting with chronic respiratory failure and then dies at three in the morning. Mm. And and I wouldn't then like dig into the fact that, oh my gosh, it was a soccer player and then No, no, my... no. You wouldn't need to know they were a soccer player, but you need to know they had they had neurodegenerative disease because that would have been diagnosed because they were a soccer player earlier. So before the, the oh, death I see what you mean, that the, the diagnosis would be picked up systematically at a higher rate. Yeah. I suppose that's possible. Yeah. I don't... Yeah. I, Again, I suppose it's possible. I, yeah. I'm just throwing I'm throwing things at this to see what sticks because I do think it it it, it this is not the most uh, amazing study in terms of the methods. They did what they could, and that's not a criticism of them. I think they did what they could, but but 
I, you know, it, it does seem to me that this, the effect size could be overstated. Now, remember, one thing to keep in mind here is the absolute risks of what we're talking about here. So this was, I believe this was death from neurodegenerative disease was 5.5% in the control group and 1.7% in the elite athletes. So we're not, that's not nothing, but that is not, we're not talking about massive numbers. And then when you start throwing in the potential for confounding, the potential for some selection bias and the potential for some surveillance bias, to me, it's possible. Well, these are overstated in terms of the size of the effect. Mm-hmm. But then we go back to the James Bond bias of there's so many ways to die. No, there's only one. You can only die once. You can only die once, but you have many <laughs> options. You have options. Well, you don't necessarily get to choose, but yes. Yes. That, could, right. that could be a movie title, too. Anything, anything else you guys want to say about this before I... I thought it was kind of clever. I liked it. Well, going back to the headlines, I would just say yeah. it does seem many of them were... I don't know. When you think about the absolute risks in particular seems like many of those headlines kind of missed the mark on, yeah, on what so. was really important. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, so true. Okay, so two two last things before I move on to this. One is, so again, I just because I like to harp on this, here's a statement that is accurate, but not helpful. Mortality with neurodegenerative disease listed as the primary or contributory cause did not differ significantly between goalkeepers and outfield players. But, but it did. I agree with you, Chris, that it did. It totally did. Because uh, the hazard ratio was 0.73, 95% confidence interval from 0.43 to 1.24. So, I, you know, it's not clear to me that they're different, but they're also, that's not nothing at the same time. I completely, and they there are other examples of that in the paper, yeah. like saying the results don't differ for stroke and cerebrovascular disease when the hazard ratio was 0.88, you yeah. know, and yeah. Yeah. And my last comment on this one, I would love to, I wish I could read the the reviews that came in on this paper because I would I'd be really curious to know if there was a statistical reviewer who had any concerns about the the paper or maybe not even just a statistical reviewer but just a an epidemiologist who had some would have some concerns about the confounding problems here in the selection bias that we raised. Again, I don't think it negates what's going on, but I do think it's worth considering. Cool. All right. Shall we move on? Shall we? High cost of reformatting. So segment two, we want to talk about the, uh, a really, to me, interesting article that came out in PLOS One. It made the rounds on Twitter, which is where I think I came across this article. It's by um, Yan Zhang from Stanford, and it was entitled The High Resource Impact of Reformatting Requirements for Scientific Papers. Oh, this made my, my, me gnash my teeth So a little bit from the, anxiety the, dreams. Yeah. So a little bit from the summary of this paper, which will explain to you why we were interested in it. So most... Manuscripts are not accepted for publication on first submission, which we know all too well. I'm dealing with two right now. A major part of the resubmission process is reformatting to another journal's specific requirements. So for those of you who don't know, when you submit a paper to a journal, the journals often have formatting requirements. That can be the the length of the article that, that it's allowed to be, the headings, the subheadings, you know, introduction, background methods, the way you structure the abstract, what needs to be on the title page, whether or not it needs to be blinded or unblinded. There is what what fonts you can use sometimes, things like that, the, whether or not you can use abbreviations, all kinds of Citation crazy stuff. Citation styles. The way the citations are listed, all this kind of stuff. And 
when you get your paper, I mean, it, so it takes great effort to get your paper ready for submission the first time. Then you get your paper rejected. You've got to reformat it for a new journal. And this takes a lot of time. So these folks analyzed original research articles, submission requirements from 12 randomly selected journals in each of eight scientific and clinical focus areas. From the 96 journals, they randomly identified three recently published manuscripts and sent surveys to the first and or corresponding authors, so 288 total, to get information on time spent reformatting resubmissions. Now, obviously, this is going to be an estimation, so you got some problems there. Uh, only 4% of the journals offered a fully format-free initial submission. So just give it to us, however, and then we'll worry about the formatting later. 203 authors responding, so they had a 72% response rate. Only 11.8% expressed satisfaction with the resubmission process. 91% desired reforming the current system. Okay, that you would expect. Time spent on reformatting delays most publications by at least two weeks and by over three months and about 20% of manuscripts. The effort to comply with submission requirements has significant global economic burden estimated over 1.1 billion, that's $1.1 billion annually when accounting for researchers' time. That's what they claim in this article. I will let you know right up front that I am skeptical of the $1.1 billion yeah, dollar way number. way too low. That's yeah, <laughs> it's based on a postdoc salary. Right, what about me? <laughs> of course, I don't give it okay, much more than I'm that. I'm just saying I don't have a lot of faith in the number. I wasn't going in a direction. Okay, so... Part of the reason we want to talk about this is because we go through this hell all the time of dealing with this particular problem. And I think this article demonstrates that it is indeed a problem. The question that I have for you both is, do we find this interesting? And is this something that we want to talk about simply because this is our own personal hell that we have to deal with and we are making too big a deal of it? Everybody has to deal with some annoying thing at their jobs and this is just ours we got to deal with it and we should really shut up about it. Or is this a real problem that needs fixing? I vote for it's a real problem that needs fixing. And as the authors point out in the introduction, I mean, this is a huge waste, even if it's not billions of dollars. It's a huge waste of public and private funds. We are now being asked to do more with less in terms of funding. And this is not something we should be wasting our time doing on at the at the stage of the first submission. Um, so let me push back on that a little because there are lots of things that we are wasting our time on and that should be made easier. But there this are... one is such an easy fix. Yeah. Just have a standard template for the first. And, you know, some journals like to have their own special little sections, you know, a take home message or something that can be added later on. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But at the first phase, it could be standardized pretty easily. Totally agree. Totally agree. All right, Chris, go ahead. Well, I, I was thinking about the things that really irritate me about this process, and 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 I, 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 I like I'm like channeling you, Jen, <laughs> because you know the things that make me gnash my teeth are all of these foolish questions like what does this add to the literature, you know, like who, <laughs> who cares to know that? what it adds until the paper's been accepted, then you can ask me. But why like waste a second asking all that nonsense up front if you're just going to reject the paper anyway? I mean, this this is like this is all like mindless filler. The, another thing that drives me crazy 
crazy is, is you know, we uh, have to go through these, these complicated online submission website pages. And it's like, you know, eight, nine tabs long of information and you have to answer a million questions. And then you do all these things, you answer all their questions and you put all, you know, you check all the boxes and then you send it off to the journal and they come back and they say, you know, please insert all that information again into the text version of the, of the cover page. And you're like, well, wait a minute. You just had me answer all those questions on the online version. I gave you the answers. Why does it have to be written twice? Yeah. Like, what is the point of that? So that makes me furious. It is utter waste of time. It means that the original information that you gave to them was irrelevant. They didn't even look at it. Yep. So why did they make you jump through those things? It's like you feel like a, like a circus dog. Jump, jump, higher, higher. Ooh, good job. Good boy. Here's your cracker. <laughs> you know? And then, like, I didn't even get a cracker. You, 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 you know, you've submitted to the BMC journal number, Biomed Central journal number one, and you get this sort of like smarmy review and all these like formatting things that like drive you crazy. And then after six months, they come back and they say, no. <laughs> But would you like to submit it to our sister journal, <laughs> journal number two? And you're like, fine, let's do that. We'll just pass it over. And like, oh, it'll be so easy. And you go to sister journal in the same family of journals, and they've got different formatting requirements too. And you're like, what? It's going on. What is the point of having different requirements for every flipping journal in the BMC catalog? <laughs> They're all the same. Can't they be the same? <laughs> what is the point of that? I don't know. And I will say, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate, but but I mean, why not? Why not just let me submit it however I want the exactly. first time? And if you don't like and if you it, don't reject like it. it. And exactly. if they like it, then format then we'll it. Format it, and then we'll go through the process. So obvious. Um, the journal epidemiology does not require formatting on first submission. Can you that. think of others? But I, they I can't gave think a of table others. in here that, that showed that most of them do. Yeah, most They're of them do. They're all very persnickety. No, no, they, they all want it up front. They would okay. just like, how much time can we extract from you for free? And they're like, hours, <laughs> apparently. Hours and hours and hours. So you think Thank they do you this just much. for fun? <laughs> I think it must be. There's no other explanation. Okay, so the question, here's the thing. So let's put this in perspective, though. If your choice was you could have no format journal a journal that would allow you to submit with no formatting, all the journals would do this. Or, crayon, crayon is okay. Or a guarantee that the, all journals would get you a response within three weeks. Which would you go for? Huh. I don't think three weeks is that that great, actually. Okay, two Ten weeks. days. Ten days. Yeah. Um, and that, that would be like initial triage, like, no, no we don't want no it. No, reviewer or, no, no. Yes, we're sending it out for review. Yeah, that's why I said days. three weeks. I was saying three weeks. That it would include the... We review it internally. We send it out. We get the reviews back. We give you a decision. Three weeks. Which would you rather have? You want to put that time into formatting, or do you want to put that time into getting reviews back quickly? Yeah. I mean, I would say if I really had turnaround within, I'm going ten days okay. because I know this is possible because a journal, my favorite journal, does do this. You can it's plug a ten it. day. You can plug it. Yeah. So European Urology is the highest impact urological journal, impact factor 17 point something. Mm -hmm. They do, and being, a, you know, when you review for them, it is uh, a bit of a burden to yeah, turn that around. In ten. But at the same time, if you're submitting papers there, you know, it's going to, you know, it's karma. So, and I do do the formatting for that journal because yeah. I know that I'm going to get my paper back in time. So that's hmm. a good point. Okay. Hmm. Uh, what if the choice was you could get... You had to either you had to do the formatting, or you could get a um, guarantee of a desk reject, no reject. So the journal mm -hmm. decides are they interested in sending it out for a review or not within two days, and then 
I guarantee that, let's say, some high percentage of papers that get sent out for review actually get published. In other words, the journal actually is doing a lot of good internal work to decide this is likely to be published. So let's say 75% or higher mm-hmm. once it's sent out for review. Not that it's guaranteed because, of course, you never know until the, re- the, the, the reviewers see it. Would you, which one of those would you take? But your formatting would have to be up front to get the two-day turnaround. But you'd turnaround. have to spend all that time formatting. I'm just trying to, trying to gauge because I, I think we do a lot of things that we waste time on. But is the hmm. formatting that helpful for the reviewer? No. So this is the thing. You're kind of saying that like it's either or. But no, why? I, I know. I'm just saying if it was. But okay. I'm just trying to put it in perspective. No, it's not. This is like that game my kids play in the, in the car. Yes. Like, would you rather would read you? a cane toad or yeah. would you rather be bitten by a rattlesnake? Yeah. Like, oh, they both wow. kind of stink. Those are two really horrible options. Which one am I going to go for? Yeah, we play that Which one Which form of certain death shall I choose? <laughs> 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 I like that game. We play that one all the time. You can play it all the way to get to Acadia National Park. Okay. (laughs) I will... um, As it turns out. My my only point here is there there are other problems... With, with journals that I, I think need I to be addressed as well. I have another problem, which ahead. you alerted to, Matt, which was the, the, the journal's not taking the time to do an, an internal, a thorough internal yeah, review of the article. Yeah, I think that's common. And so, you, you know, you, you get, as a reviewer, you get pitched papers that are totally unpublishable, and you're like, why did you even bother to send this to me when this is obviously just an awful piece of science? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. or yep. when you are the reviewer and you get a, you know, a, like, like a so-so paper and you spend a lot of time working on it, and then you send it back to the journal, and then they come back to you three weeks later saying, would you like to review the the response from the authors? And they haven't responded to anything you sent in the first round. Yep. And so you've now totally wasted your time on doing the review for this journal. Yeah. I'm I'm with you. But that is not what this is about. But it makes me so, mad. But it, it makes, makes me mad. So I, hear mad. You. I hear you. All right. Well, I think we have um, we have done enough on that one. Let's move on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go first this time because I have a really short one, and I'm going back to the well of acknowledgments that I really mm-hmm. enjoy. Funny acknowledgments. Um, this one, unfortunately, I got this off of. Twitter, I believe, and therefore they didn't give the citation and I couldn't actually look it up. So I'm going to assume that this one is correct. But this was in the uh, acknowledgments section of a paper. And the acknowledgments read as follows. This work has been carried out despite the economical difficulties of the author's country. The authors want to overall remark the clear contribution of the Spanish government in destroying the R&D horizon of Spain and the future of a complete generation. Wow. That is really, uh, that's burning some bridges right there. Yeah. That is, do not try to get any funding after that from the Spanish (laughs) government. (laughs) Although if no one reads acknowledgments, you know, maybe it won't matter. Uh, Except for you. I guess not. And I I don't even know how I came across it. So anyway, that's me. I like that. Chris, what do you got? All right. Well, I am, uh, as you know, very interested in vaccines. And I ran across this paper, which is actually not new. It's 2014, written by Reno Rapoli, who was the uh, head of research and development for vaccinology at Novartis in Siena. Mm -hmm. And he's still there, but is now GSK. Someone you've worked with? Yes, yes. Uh, I've worked with him. He's a very um, sort of impressive scientists. So he had written this paper about the 
first rabies vaccine by Louis Pasteur back in the, well, when was the date actually? It was in 1882. In 1882. So we, we all know this famous story that, uh, or I think we do, of how Louis Pasteur demonstrated the efficacy of the first rabies vaccine that he had been testing in dogs. And then this, this, this boy, Joseph Meister, was brought in who had been mauled by a rabid dog and everybody knew he was going to die. And so Pasteur immediately gave him the, the, his experimental vaccine that had been tested only in dogs. And Joseph Meister did not die and grew up, you know, had a long, long life and actually ended up being the groundskeeper for the Pasteur Institute until he died in his 80s. Yeah. So it's sort of like a fascinating story. Now, that's the sort of like the high level summary of what happened. And what Reno did was to dig into Pasteur's notebooks. Oh, wow. And to just actually to get, get into the actual mechanics of the experiment and how he did it. So, uh, and a lot of this I had not known. So the way he, 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 he started his research on his experimental rabies vaccine was, first of all, he needed to have a supply of rabies virus that was not in dogs because getting rabies samples from rabid dogs is obviously risky. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> That's, that is a, that is a so, really bad research so, assistant job. So you don't, you don't want that job. <laughs> nope, nope. So he started with a rabid dog, which presumably had been sacrificed, and then he took the spinal cord of that dog and desiccated it and then injected that into the, into the, under the, theca, the fecal sac into the spinal fluid, basically, of a rabbit, which is a much safer animal to work with mm-hmm. when you're dealing with rabies because mm-hmm. they don't, like, attack you and try to kill you. Generally, you just have to keep you know, your fingers away from their little sharp teeth. Sure. And so he, he then was able to prove that he could propagate a rabid the, the rabbit, the, 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 rab, the rabid rabbit. Uh, it's like Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh-huh. um, yep. uh, over time. And so he'd like keep passaging it through the rabbits and could stain it over and over and over. And once he'd done that 20 or 30 times, he then started to take little segments of the sacrificed rabbit spinal cord and then dry them in you know, in the sun, basically, for varying lengths of time. And um, after he sort of desiccated them and dried them for 15 days or so to a couple of weeks, he would grind them up in this mortar and pestle and mix them with water and inject them into a dog to see what would happen. And the long desiccated spinal cord from, from rabbits prevented the dogs from getting rabies. Mm. Okay, whereas if they he dried the spinal cord for shorter and shorter times, like a week or less or a couple of days, the dogs would get rabies. And so it was all about how long you could dry this stuff up to make it more and more, uh, less and less virulent, right? And so he was doing all these experiments in dogs and he tested it 50 times in dogs and it totally worked in the dogs. And then Joseph Meister shows up and, you know, and, and, and he shows up on July 4th, uh, U.S. Independence Day, incidentally, and quite a mess. He'd been bitten all over his face. And so not only was he going to die, but he was going to die soon because the time to death from rabies is, is dependent on how long the neurons are. So the, the facial neurons, the cranial nerves are short. They're a couple inches long as opposed to your arm, which is a three feet long, mm-hmm. right? And so it takes a long time to get rabies from a hand bite, and it takes days from a facial bite. Wow. So, which is, which is also interesting. Because huh. it's, it's retrograde transport up the axon until it jumps into the spinal cord. And so the way rabies vaccines work, actually, which is a little bit scary, is that they intercept the virus at that synapse. So when it goes up the nerve from your arm, say, and then gets to the spinal cord, it has to then cross that synaptic junction and get into the spinal cord. And once it jumps into the spinal cord, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. There's like, like mortality is at that point, 100%. Yep. And so rabies vaccines work by creating antibodies that block rabies virus in the synaptic cleft, which is like really thin. And so it ha- the, the concentration of antibodies in the synaptic cleft has to be super high and they have to be potent and they have to neutralize it in that like sub micrometer gap. Otherwise you die, right? 
and so, and of course, he didn't know the pathology of this. He just knew that his vaccine worked. So he did this, right? And his experimental protocol for, for Joseph Meister was to give him dog spinal cord extract that he had been, you know, incubating on his desk since June 21st, which is 15 days before the, the bite occurred. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he would give the next day, he would give them the, he gave Joseph Meister the spinal cord extract that had been desiccated for 14 days. And then the next day, 13 days, and then 12 days. And so he was more sort of actually marking, marching forward in terms of less and less, less and less certainty that the extract would not be red hot with rabies mm-hmm. until he got to like, he was injecting him with dog extract from yesterday, which he Ooh. knew in the dogs would definitely give you rabies. Right. So not only why did is he doing he, it? Well, because he he was applying the same paradigm that he was trying to go from least likely to be virulent to most likely to virulent as sort of way of gradually building your immune response up over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was his theory. We would now say that's totally bonkers. Because yeah. why would you ever expose someone intentionally to rabies? But, you know, but he did. And he knew that he was doing this because in parallel, every day he gave a little bit of this extract also to a bunny to see what would happen to the bunny. And the bu- the bunnies that got rabies extract on July 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 were all super good to go bunnies, did not develop rabies. But the ones that were exposed from July 11th on, which represented the the five day or the less than seven day desiccation spinal cord extracts, all got rabies. Mm. And Pastor knew in real time that the bunnies were getting rabies as he was still injecting this stuff. And so not only did his vaccine prevent a dog bite rabies, but there was a second sort of challenge, which is that he was administering systematically live rabies virus to these to this child. And, but it all worked out. But it all worked out well. <laughs> but we, we will stipulate the IRB was not consulted on all wow. aspects of this protocol. Why did it work out? Uh, well, because the early exposure to the, the very long desiccation exposure spinal cord was highly immunogenic. And it wow. led to rabies and neutralizing antibodies. And, you know, he was good to go. Wow. Quite okay. an experiment. That's amazing. The, the other thing that's sort of like aside is that, that there's a little extract of a picture of, of Pastor's notebook, which, you know, can the you, fact that it was written in French not with, okay. notwithstanding <laughs> is also completely legible. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so like exactly True. what the protocol was. I just sort of zoomed it up on my webpage. I still couldn't figure out. A, no. You know, something, something happened in June is all I can tell. <laughs> or maybe July. So anyway. All right. Interesting. Okay. So I have a little early holiday gift for Ooh, each of you. Ooh, I like gifts. Ooh, cool. That I saw and I thought of you, you both. Oh, wow. I couldn't afford a therapist, so I decided, hey, why, why not start, start a, a podcast? podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put this on my fridge. Yeah, I like that. so they're magnets. Thank you so much. That's awesome. That is fantastic. And it's got a little twi- a tweeter bird. <laughs> It is a picture of a bird, and it says, I couldn't afford a therapist, so I decided, hey, and look, I why not the start a podcast? It. Hey, you're right, right in our neighborhood. And I will um, <laughs> I will stipulate that at least for me, this podcast is therapy, particularly as noted by my intros. So there you go. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthEx, or you can tweet me. At Prof Matt Fox, or you can tweet 
Chris at ID.Gill or Janet at Jennifer R. Ryder. So that's three R's. Or find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Cooler for sound and editing and editing and editing some more. Well done, Nick. Thanks for joining us. So it's graham crackers and chocolate and marshmallows. We have no idea what you just said. Editing some more. But we <laughs> hope you enjoyed it. And we hope Chris will make some good puns next time. Yep. <laughs>